Well, hello, church. Good to see you. I'm Steve. Go ahead and stand up. We're going to worship God in this house of the Lord. This should be joyous. If it's not joyous, you're doing it wrong, okay? Yeah, no, we 
Good morning. We are so glad you're here. You can go have, have a seat. Uh, man, we are grateful that you're here. My name is Ben Webb. I'm a Connections pastor here. We're grateful that you're joining us. Uh, this is going to be an awesome day. It's going to be a challenging day. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, but let's start with this. we got a few things that we want to make you aware of, just some stuff that's happening that would be good for you to know, be a part of if you can be, and that's great. Start with this. Today, after this service, after the second service, we have a little uh, opportunity that we call Getting Started 101. This is for anyone who uh, maybe hasn't made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you don't know how to go about beginning a life with Jesus, uh, following him, giving your life to him, and we want to answer any and all questions that you have, all right? And so after the service, as you leave these doors to the left, there's a room that has the big word connections over the door. I will be at that door or in that room. They're available to answer any of those questions, help you figure out what it is that you need to do to take that next step in your spiritual journey, all right? And so we've got that going on today. We also have this coming up this next Saturday. It's the Father Kid Bowl, and it's a football game, not a football game. This is a bowling opportunity, all right, like with bowling balls, all right. Uh, I envisioned grown men tackling five-year-olds, all right, but that's not what this is, yeah, which would have been fun. Like I would have like signed up first for that, all right, maybe third for this. Okay, so, so it's at the Capitol Bowl. It's 10 to 12. If you would go ahead and sign up and register for that, capcity.info or on your church, church center app, if you do those things, uh, go in those places. Uh, sign up for that so that we can plan for that. We need to make sure we have enough room reserved and set up for you to be able to be there and, uh, and be able to participate, all right? So if that's something you want to do, make sure you do that. Also, next Saturday, same day, we have our parents' night out. Now, I don't know if you can, uh, can relate to this. Someone can. Uh, but sometimes parents like to get rid of their kids. <laughs> yeah? There we go. We're getting excited here. <laughs> it was your wife and then you. There we go. So they need to get rid of their kids for a little bit. And we're going to provide that opportunity. Our students are offering this. This is a fundraiser for them for their camps this summer. They charge $15 a kid. Some of you can feel free to pay even more, all right? Like it's a fundraiser, so you can spend more than that if you want. But bring them. It's from 5 to 8, opportunity to just support our student ministries here. Also opportunity for you to just go spend an evening uh, with your spouse and be able to be together away from those kids. We know how valuable that is. So take advantage of that opportunity. Again, they're asking you to register for that so that we can make sure we're prepared when you drop those kids off, that we have enough supervision to make sure that they're still alive at the end of the night when you do want them back, all right? So make sure we have that figured out. All right, so today we're going to have uh, some, some really, I think, challenging conversations, all right? It, this is a little bit of a difficult thing for us to talk about. And we're going to be talking about this idea of total surrender. It's a biblical concept. It's something that exists. It's, it's something that we're challenged to do when it comes to following Jesus. And, it, and it's something that we see even Old Testament that God required of people who gave their lives to him. Except that it's really uncomfortable for us and it's really hard. And as we were talking about it this week, as we were preparing for this day, this question came up. What is the thing? What is that thing that you would say no to God? If God came to you and asked you to do something, where's the line that you would say, God, I'm willing to follow you, but not that far? Like, well, what is it? When would God cross the line for you? What would those limits be? And when we say that he's our Lord and when we say that, we, that we're going to submit to him, I'm willing to submit to him up to a certain point and then I'm going to back off, right? Like, no, I'm not going to go that far, right? And it's kind of a strange question. It's kind of a hard thing. There's a story in the Old Testament about this father and son, Abraham and Isaac. And Doc's going to talk a lot more about that this morning and, and give more of the story if you're not familiar with it. But it's one of those moments where God asks something that I think most people would say, no, I'm not willing to do that. 
And within that conversation, it kind of brought up this other idea, and it's, it's seen like this. It's a thought experiment that you may be familiar with. It's something called the trolley problem. Any of you familiar with that one? Sometimes it's done with trains, okay? But the whole concept is that there's this train track, okay? And that you are in a position at a switch. The train, the train track splits up ahead. The trolley track splits up ahead. And you get to choose which of the two tracks it goes down. And if it goes down one direction, it's going to hurt a large amount of people. They're, they're, they're in a position, they're in a situation where if the, if the train or the trolley goes that direction, it's going to hurt them, it's going to kill them, uh, whatever else, Okay? But if you were to switch it the other direction, it would only hurt one person, except that person would be someone that you love deeply, all right? Like it could be your child or your spouse. It could be your favorite worship minister or your favorite preacher named Doc, all right? Like it could be someone down that line. And you have to make the decision, am I going to send them towards the one that I love the most or the one where it's going to hurt the most amount of people, right? And it's kind of a hard thing to think. So to help you out with this, we've brought in a renowned philosopher. It's little Nicholas, and he's going to help us think through this. So let's watch this first video. Uh-oh, Nicholas. This train is going to crash into these five people. Should we move the train to go this way, or should we let it go that way? Which way should the train go? All right. Now, if you're not familiar with this, I want you to just kind of think and, and, and kind of consider this, all right? How many of you, and I want a crowd participation here, okay? So you can do this by clapping. You can let out a woo-woo if you wish, all right? But how many of you feel confident that you know exactly what you would do in this kind of a situation? <laughs> Perfect. That's, ex that's the response I expected, all right? This is kind of a weird thing. It's a strange thought experiment. It's a really tough situation, hard to figure out. And so, again, this is why we brought in little Nicholas. He's going to help us out. Let's see what he does. There we go. All right. Now, what's fun about this is because we try to do this with God, don't we? There's times whenever he kind of calls us to something that's hard, and what we do is we see if we can just change the rules. <laughs> if I could just maybe change the context and the situation of what's going on, then, then maybe I can be more comfortable with the results. Then I can make a different decision other than the, the situation that he's presented me, right? And that's what we want to do, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the context of total surrender. What does it look like to actually let God set the terms of what it is that I'm going to do, all right? And just for fun, let's see how this finishes with little Nicholas. He's, he says, uh-oh. That's my favorite part. This is great. We thought that he was going to teach us something profound, and it turns out it's a boy with trains and victims, all right? Like, it's exactly what we thought it could be, all right? Here's the deal. I want you to already begin wrestling with this. As we, as we stand here in a moment, we're going to go back into worship. I want you to already be thinking through whether or not you have actually completely surrendered yourself to Jesus whether or not you've really actually allowed God to be the leading force in your life. Is Jesus just your Savior, or is he also your Lord? Meaning that you'll do anything that he would ask of you, even the things that seem a bit ridiculous, even the things that, that seem like they're just really too much. Would you be willing to surrender to God? And as we step back into worship, I want you to do this prayer with us.
Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
trust in you. Even in the difficult times when we have to make sacrifices and we have to surrender things that we really want to hold on to, Father, we give you our whole life, our whole heart, everything. That's very, very challenging for me. Being able to hear your word and know that there's, even those in scripture struggled with this, Father, we come before you and we repent of living a life for ourselves. We want to live a life for you and only you. So, Father, when we sing these words, that we will trust you. We will trust you with everything because we expect you to do something and move within us. Expect you to move within our lives and do way better at uh, directing our lives than we can. Father, we pray each of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? It says in Luke 9, a scripture that I really want to make sure that we're really focused on as we get into our message time. It says this, when Jesus Christ was talking to the crowd, and he's talking to us as well. We're, we're the crowd right now. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? Let's keep that in our minds as we listen what God might have to say through his word. Now, if you are a mature Jesus follower, there's a good chance that what I'm going to talk about this morning will still make you a bit uncomfortable. And if you're not a mature Jesus follower, there's a good chance that you might hate it. In fact, you might actually think something like this, if, if he's right about God, I'm not sure I like God much. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Jesus follower, this stuff is probably going to sound flat out weird to you. And you may be tempted to push God even further away. But the story that I'm going to unpack this morning is in the Bible for a reason. It's a story that I do go back to from time to time because it is so, well, for most people it's at least problematic one of those stories that people use to justify their rejecting the God of the Bible because it does expose a side of God that is at least confusing and sometimes terrifying to people. In fact, I think this is one of the most countercultural stories in the Bible, and there are a boatload of them. But I'm going to unpack it anyway because it actually, I think, points to the very end of our discipleship path. You see, we don't think our job is done when a person accepts Jesus as their Savior. We think that's just the beginning. Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. In other words, go help people get started on this path with Jesus. Make Jesus followers. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But don't stop there. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. All of them. In other words, it's not just about believing that Jesus is your Savior, it's about surrendering to Jesus as your Lord. It's an absolute, unconditional surrender. So are you there? 
Now, sometimes people accuse us Jesus followers of bait and switch, right? Come to Jesus and he's going to make your life better. And so they come to Jesus and discover that life as a Jesus follower is still hard. In fact, sometimes even harder than it was before. But Jesus didn't use bait and switch. He just laid it out there. He's kind of like, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your mom and your dad, your wife, kids, brothers, sisters, even your own life. He says, otherwise you can't be my disciple. In fact, you've got to be able to carry your own cross and follow me or you can't be my disciple. So he actually says this, guys, don't begin this path. Don't start on this path until you count the cost. Are you going to be willing to go all the way? And he wraps it up with this. He says, those of you who don't give up everything just can't be my followers. Don't even start if you don't think you're willing to go all in. Well, that's hard. But guys, that's where his discipleship path leads to absolute unconditional surrender. So that's where our discipleship path leads. We talk about just looking, just looking at Jesus, deciding whether you're going to be a Jesus follower or not, then getting started, getting started with Jesus. We talk about digging deeper, starting to develop a faith of your own. And then the final stage in our path is this all in, absolute unconditional surrender. It's not about you anymore. It's about him. And this is about as countercultural as it gets, right? Now, here's the deal. And you've got to listen because this is going to sound weird at first. The further you are from the real God, the less attractive he is, I think. He's demanding. He's scary. He's uncompromising. And yet, paradoxically, the closer to the real God you get, the more intoxicating he is. And it's the same basic principle when you talk about Christian maturity. The further you are from Christian maturity, the less desirable it seems. I don't want to grow up. I don't want to give up my me. And paradoxically, the closer to spiritual maturity you get, the more sense it makes, the more sense he makes. And so at first, God requires a leap of trust, a leap of faith. And it's only when you get on the other side that it begins to make sense, that you understand that it's worth it. So let's start here. I'm going to ask you a weird, weird question. Are you ready? Would you be a Jesus follower today if there was no heaven and no hell? Would you? Take away the carrot of heaven, take away the stick of hell, would you be a Jesus follower? Let me ratchet it up. What if not only there's no heaven, what if there's no earthly gain either? It doesn't make your life easier on earth. And what if there's no not only no hell, what if there are no earthly consequences for blowing God off? Now, I could rephrase the question like this, I think. Do you love God for who he is or for what's in it for you? Why are you a Jesus follower? Would you follow God if all he offered you was himself? By the way, that's kind of how it was for God followers of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. They didn't have a clear notion yet of heaven and hell. And being God followers often made their life tougher in this world, not easier. They still thought it was worth it. Would you? 
So I repeat the question. Do you love God for who he is or for what he gives you? Is it about him or is it about you? Now, we usually start following Jesus because of what's in, in it for us. But the end of the path where he wants to take you is about him. Now, about a thousand years ago, there was a Jesus follower named Bernard. Bernard of Clairvaux. Saint Bernard. Don't you love that name? Not the dog. But Bernard distinguished between four different degrees, levels of love, from the lowest to the highest. Here's level one. Lowest level of love, he says, is loving yourself for the sake of yourself. I mean, it's all about number one. You take care of number one, which is where most people who are without God are. In fact, I think it's the most logical place for a person who's without God to be. Level two, you love God, but for self's sake, which is where most all of us, I think, get started with God. We become Jesus followers because we're convinced that it might make our life better. And I'm not just talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about life in this world, right? Right here, right now. That's our expectation. But here's the deal. Listen. If you are still here at level two, after years of being a Jesus follower, you don't get it. You're not growing up. You're not maturing. Have you ever been around so-called adults who still act like self-centered kids? Well, if you're still loving God for self's sake after years of Jesus follower, you're kind of like that. You're a big, self-absorbed baby, spiritually, right? Level three, where you're headed, I hope. The love of God for God's sake, which means it's not about what I want. It's not about what I like, what benefits me. It's about what God wants, what God likes, what benefits him. It's about serving God and those God loves. We call that all in. Now, St. Bernard also identified a fourth degree of love, but it's so rare, even among mature Jesus followers, that it's rarely ever experienced, rarely even, even glimpsed. In fact, I'm not even sure I can understand what he describes. So I'm just going to stay there at level three. Love of God for, love, for God's sake. And guys, this is what this story, this weird, weird story in the Bible is all about. It's one of the hardest stories in the Bible, one of the most confusing or even hated stories in the Bible. So extraordinary that if you are not close to God, it's repelling to you. And if you are close to God, it's still convicting. It's troublesome. You've got Abraham, one of the giants of the Old Testament, doing what most of us would consider immoral. You've got Isaac, his kid, who crazily seems to go along with it, maybe, and then you've got God, the perfectly good, perfectly holy God, who seems to ask Abraham to do something that is not good and not holy. In fact, in this story, it almost seems like God is a monster. So here it goes. It says that God decided to test Abraham's faith and obedience. Here's a tip, guys. If God decides to test your faith, watch out. You see, sometimes when something is tested, it's pushed to the limits. It's stretched to the breaking point. Think special forces. I mean, tests reveal who you are. So that's where God took Abraham. God calls to Abraham, Abraham. And if Abraham had known what God was going to say next, I'm not sure he would have answered. But he simply says, here I am. 
What do you want me to do? And here it is. Here's the part that literally troubled me for decades. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love so much, go to the land of Moriah. Now, you can't see it in the Hebrew, I mean in the English, but in the Hebrew, there's a little tiny attachment to one of these words that kind of means please, please. And it's almost like God is saying, Abraham, please, Please take your precious son and go to the land of Moriah, which is a weird word for God because God doesn't ordinarily ask and he almost never says please when he speaks to his kids. Abraham, God says, please take your son, your only son, the son you love so much, go to, the, go to Moriah. You can almost feel just in the way that it's worded that God knows that what is going to come next is going to be nearly unbelievable. God says, I want you to take him there and kill him. Take the son that you waited for for 100 years, kill him. Take the miracle son that I promised you, the one that I promised grandkids to you through. I want you to slit his throat, cut up his body, and burn him for me. And it's not like Abraham was a jerk who needed killing. Abraham loved the kid. So did God. Years ago when Andy was little, my son, I asked Julie, if you were absolutely convinced that God wanted it, would you kill Andy? <laughs> Could you slit his throat, cut up his body, and burn him? If you're a parent, and if you loved your kid, if you knew it was God's will, would you do it? Even if you believe that God could raise your kid from the dead. Tell you the truth, I don't think I could ever believe that God would ever want me to kill my child. If I heard a voice like this, I would know it was from Satan or that I was going crazy. If one of you guys came into my office and told me that you heard the voice of God telling you to kill your kid, I'd have you committed even if I was in Abraham's shoes and I was absolutely convinced that this was the voice of God. Could I obey a command like that? Could a loving God ever ask anything like that from his kids? How could a holy God ask something so unholy? But there's something more here. Did you know that God is asking Abraham for more than just the death of his son? You see, if Abraham puts a knife into his son, the kid will not be the only thing that dies. This was God's promised child. This was the promised one through whom God was going to do his work. How could God keep his promise? The death of his son would also be the death of his hope in God. Now, God had asked a whole lot from Abraham before, but every other time when God had asked Abraham to do something, to sacrifice something, he promised something better to replace it. Abraham had always gained more than he had given up for God. This time it seemed different. I mean, Jesus one time said something. He says, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, fields for my sake is going to receive a hundred times as much more in return and an eternal life as well. Well, it's a hard thing, but we get it. Here God asks Abraham to give up something precious, but he promises nothing in return. Give me your son, no strings attached. 
promise you nothing. God says, so, maybe what God is really asking is this. How much do you trust me? Maybe even, are you in it for me? Are you in it for my blessings? Do you love me or do you love my promises? Are you in it for me or for what you can get out of me? If everything else is stripped away, if I take away your hope so that all that is left is me, is that enough? Now, you know what happens next? Next morning it says Abraham got up early. I figure he didn't sleep at all. Said he saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. It says that he chopped wood for the sacrifice chopped wood for the fire that would consume his son's body. I couldn't do that. Because, and this may be the most unbelievable part of this story, Abraham's going to do it. He's decided to do it. He decided to trust God anyway. Maybe even more, he decided that obeying God was more important than the life of his son maybe even more important than his hope in God's blessings. And then it says he set out for the place that God had told him to go. Now, I am pretty sure that Abraham never told his wife, Sarah, what he was doing. I can't imagine that he told his mama what he was going to do, or else somebody else might have had his throat cut, right? Julie would have had me committed. says they were on the road for three days, Abraham and his son, because the toughest tests almost always take time. I mean, if you make a decision to do something hard, sometimes it's easier just to get it over with. Can you imagine how hard it would be to walk for three days next to this child that you're supposed to kill? Maybe those three days are important. Sometimes we just act before we think. Abraham had three days to think about it. He had three days to rationalize some way out. He had three days to talk himself out of doing what God had asked. Or maybe three days to cultivate some sliver of hope. But what you see is that what Abraham does is not a crime of passion. It's a choice, a decision, a conscious commitment to obey something beyond hard. It says that when they got to Mount Moriah, Abraham told his two servants to stay back with the donkeys. What he tells them seems like a bit of a lie. He says, the boy and I are going to travel a little further. We're going to worship there, and then we're going to come back. Right. I wonder what he was trying to do. I, I don't know who Abraham was trying to fool. Was he afraid that if the servants knew he was planning that they might try to stop him? I would have if I'd been one of those servants. Was he afraid that Isaac might discover what he was up to and that he'd have to drag his son to the top if he could? I don't know how old Isaac was or how big he was. Was Abraham thinking about backing out? Maybe he could go to the top, worship God for a while, try to convince God there must be another way? Was he trying to hang on to some faint hope that maybe God would change his mind? If you go to the New Covenant, the book of Hebrews, it says that Abraham was hoping that after he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Even so, doing what God had asked would still be impossibly hard, wouldn't it, for me? How far does your trust in God go? 
I suspect his thoughts and feelings were so jumbled that even he didn't know why he told this little lie. And it's this next part that tears me up and just keeps going. It says that Abraham put the wood on Isaac's shoulders. He made Isaac carry his own cross. Not out of cruelty. Abraham himself carried the knife in the fire. I think they'd have been heavier. And here's the hard part. It says that as they were climbing up the hill, Isaac says, Dad, Daddy, we have wood, we have fire. Where's the lamb? Which seems to indicate he didn't know. Is he starting to figure it out? He knew that knife and fire and wood added up to sacrifice. He'd seen them cut the throat of sheep. He'd watched as the sheep's body was burned as an offering to God. Was he clueless? If he suspected, his silence was amazing. But can you imagine how those words, where is the lamb, would have cut his father? What would you say to your son? You know what Abraham says? He says, God will provide a lamb, my son. God will take care of it. I'm not sure exactly what his words mean. Is he trying to hide his plans from his son Isaac just a little longer? Is he hoping that once he gets to the top, God will surprise him with a critter to kill instead? And now it's almost as if the story goes into slow motion. Slower and slower till it almost stops. It says when they got to the place that God had sent them, Abraham built this altar which means they probably would have made a large table of stones and placed the wood up on the altar. And, and then it says, then it says he tied Isaac up. I'm not even sure how to picture this scene because about that time, if he hadn't guessed it yet, Isaac figured it out. I don't know whether he struggled with his dad, doesn't say. I would have. Or whether he was so shocked and afraid that he couldn't resist or whether his trust in his father and his God was that powerful, would yours have been? In any case, Abraham ties up his son, lays him on the altar, takes the knife in his hand, and he raises his hand, the knife, to kill his son as a sacrifice to his God. Abraham's going to do it. His full intent is to obey his God and kill his son with some desperate hope for a resurrection maybe. Now, how in the world could God put a man in a spot like this? How could a holy God, a perfect God, put a flawed and fragile servant in a spot like this? How could a God who is pure, a God who has never sinned, who never ever tempts man to sin, ask Abraham to do something that seems so immoral? I remember one time talking with one of my former students about this scene. A couple of you guys here in the church know him. He used to preach here in town, a guy named Russ Westbrook, sharp kid. You know what Russ said? He quoted C.S. Lewis to me. One of my students pulled C.S. Lewis on me. He said, according to Lewis, God is holy, God is perfect, but God is not tame. He's a perfect God, but he's not a tame God. The real big G God is anything but tame. And he was right. Our holy God is not tame. Then it dawned on me. 
Maybe my arrogant little case against God was flawed. Maybe what God asked of Abraham was extraordinary, amazingly difficult, but maybe it was not actually immoral. Maybe it simply was perceived by me to be immoral because I had forgotten that life is not more important than holiness. Life is not more important than obedience to God. Do you believe that? We get it twisted. We act as if there's absolutely nothing more important than human life. And we forget that men of conviction, men of courage, men of honor, men of faith have always known that there are things more important than physical life. What Abraham was doing was not a murderous act of vengeance. It wasn't some self-centered ritual to manipulate God. It was a completely selfless act of obedience. Abraham was saying something like this, I will give you anything, even my son, even my hope, if that's what you ask of me. Because that's what God asked of him. But God didn't let him kill his son. I don't think God ever meant for Isaac to die at the hands of his dad. At that moment, it says, with the son laying bound on the altar and Abraham with the knife in his hand, raised to strike, God called to Abraham through an angel. Abraham, Abraham. I love that second Abraham. I think the first one would have done it, would have stopped me. But that second one, I suspect, had some urgency to it. Abraham. Now, you can imagine the tone of Abraham's voice when he answers. Yeah, I'm listening. I don't think that begins to capture the passion that Abraham felt when he heard God call his name. I don't think it begins to capture the relief, the stirrings of hope. Lay down the knife, the angel said. Don't hurt the boy in any way, because I know that you truly fear God. Now I know that you truly fear God. Would you ever want to hear those words? God said, you've not even withheld your beloved son from me. Fact is, guys, I suspect the boy was never in any real danger. But Abraham didn't know that. He couldn't. And it says that Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught by its horns in the bush. So he takes the ram, sacrifices it as a burnt offering on the altar in place of his son. And it says that he named the place Yahweh Yirah. You've probably heard it like this, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. <laughs> it says the name has become a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. No kidding. Just wait. So what do we learn? What's important about this story for you and for me? I'm not going to draw out a bunch of practical tidbits for Christian living. I'm not going to look for any principles that is going to make the Christian life easier for us. But I do want to draw out of this story four great truths for our faith because these truths get right to the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Number one, Christianity is not just about believing some things about God. Christianity is about obeying God. You can believe in God. You can believe in Jesus. You can believe in heaven and hell. You can believe in godliness and still not be a Jesus follower. It's not just a matter of belief. James put it like this. Faith without works is dead. If you are not willing to put your obedience where your mouth is, 
You're not a Jesus follower. You believe that? Do you live like it? Number two, God has to be first. Absolute unconditional surrender. I mean, God presents Abraham with two horrifying alternatives. Obey me and kill your kid or walk away from your God. What God is really asking Abraham is this. Is there anything in your life that's more important than me? Because God won't take back seat to anyone or anything in your life. Do you get that? Jesus made the same point. He says, if you want to be my follower, you've got to love me more than, you've got to love me more than your own mom and dad, wife, kids, brothers, sisters, even your own life. You can't be my disciple if you don't. Is there anyone, is there anything in your life more important to you than Jesus? Number three, the deepest levels of faith are always the most selfless. See, Abraham didn't go to that mountain because he was trying to manipulate God in some way. He didn't raise the knife because he was trying to get God to do something for him. He was willing to give up the most precious thing in his life if that's what God wanted. He was willing to crush his own hope if that's where God led him. There was nothing self-centered in this act of faith. The only other man in the Bible that I can think of who expresses selflessness this vividly is the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul writes in the book of Romans. He says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow. My heart is filled with unending grief for my people who haven't turned to Jesus, my Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, I'd be willing to be forever cursed by God. I'd be willing to be cut off from Christ if that would save them. (laughs) If it would serve my God, if it would help those I love, I'd go to hell in their place, the apostle Paul said doesn't get any more selfless than that, does it? The deepest levels of faith are always the most selfless. There's no thought of self anymore. It's just God. And that's the end of the path. Are you getting any closer? You see, this story, guys, isn't about whether we love our kids more than we love God. It isn't about whether we're going to trust God with our kids. It isn't even about what we're willing to give to God. It's about what we are in it for. What motivates your faith in God? Are you in it for you or are you in it for Him? You're a Christian because of what God's going to give you someday? Or are you a Jesus follower because Jesus is enough? Bottom line, I think I'd have failed the test. I'm pretty sure. If I'd been Abraham... I don't think I could have done what Abraham was willing to do. But I wonder if God would whisper to me, well, Steve, I've never asked you to do what I asked Abraham to do. My question to you is, are you willing to do what I do ask you to do? Are you willing to pass the test that I give you? Maybe God would never ask anything akin of this to you because he knows you'd fail the test. The real question for you is, will you be faithful to God in the situation you're in right now? Because we're all tested, aren't we? What's your test? Maybe your marriage is hard and you'd rather have a way out. Maybe you're getting hosed online and you're tempted to lash out hurt someone back. Maybe there's someone who's making your life hellish at work or at school and 
you'd rather see them in hell than in heaven. I don't know where God's testing your faith. Are you willing to surrender to doing life with God, for God, God's way, even when it's hard, in whatever way you are tested? One more big idea, number four. Did you know that this extraordinary scene is going to be replayed 2,000 years later? Another father would lead his son up the same mountain. The son would carry the wood, and the father would carry the knife and the fire. The father would raise his hand to kill his son, and there was no voice from heaven to stop him. See, it wasn't the Jews and the Romans who nailed Jesus to a cross. It was his father. And if you want to have some inkling of what the father felt at that moment, take Abraham's knife in your hand and look at your kid. If you want to have some inkling of what God thinks about you, take Abraham's knife in your hand and look at your child because our God loves you enough to send his son to die in your place. I remember hearing a conversation about a Sunday school class one time and they were talking about this story and one person said, I could never believe in a God who'd ask something like this of one of his kids. Another person said, well, I wouldn't want a God who couldn't. I wouldn't either, I don't think. He's God. He's holy, but he's not tame. And the stakes are so high. He demands obedience, but he will never ask from you anything more that he has already sacrificed for you. And what he offers his faithful children is far greater than anything we can build for ourselves. If you want to know what God thinks of you, that's what this table's about, isn't it? That's where the father led his own son up the mountain and sacrificed his kid so that you can be here as a Jesus follower, so you can have that hope. In just a moment, we're going to come to this table. We're going to sing a song of worship first, but why don't you pray with me? Father, for that kind of love, we give you thanks. For the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for you, to surrender to you. We ask your, help, ask your help, we ask your courage. Help us do the right thing. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.
Father, we are so grateful for the example of Jesus Christ, the one who taught us what surrender looks like. Father, we cannot thank you enough for your gift to this world, your gift to each of us in our hearts. We want to be your servants, and we want to follow you entirely. Here is our heart. Take it, seal it. Seal it for you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. As you leave this place, we want to be reminded again that there's one way to be the follower of Jesus Christ. Give up your own way, surrender, take up your cross daily and follow him. We're so glad that you chose to be in this place. I hope to see you again next week.